Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have steadily spread their influence beyond the Middle East and are increasingly gaining traction in Africa's Sahel, the region between the Sahara to the north and the Savannah to the south, stretching from Mauritania in the west to Sudan in the east. Militants in Niger this month staged the deadliest attack yet, killing over 70 soldiers during an assault on a military base. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the challenge facing that region of Africa is Judd Devermont director of the Africa program with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Judd, good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks for having me. The attack in Niger stunned the world, but observers of the growing jihadist movement in Africa are not that surprised. There has been a big increase in activity in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso, focused on a stretch of land in the three countries called the leptako Gorma region. How has that become the center of this insurgency? Yeah, well, essentially what's happened is that we saw this insurgency uh, start in 2011 uh, in northern Mali, and then it has slowly uh, made its way further and further south as the upper center has moved um, from northern Mali to central Mali and now into this, this border region between Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso. And I would attribute it to a couple of factors. First, this is one of the most formidable groups I've ever seen in my career. They are agile. They are very good at building relationships with people in communities, finding ways to embed themselves, often by using violence to exploit uh, latent tensions within the communities and then present themselves as uh, the best uh, provider of law and order and services, or at least relative to the government. And then on the other side, from the governments, um, I think either mistake after mistake or willful neglect. And the governments have, in the case of Mali and Burkina, used human rights abuses, which has pushed people into the arms of the recruiters, or they haven't responded forcefully enough and have ceded the space. And the ambitions of this group, I, I think, are, are, are fairly wide and they're not just preaching in Tuar in Tamashek, the language of the Tuaregs, or they're not just preaching um, in Pul, uh, the language of the Fulani, or even in Arabic. There there's a whole host of different languages they're using that suggests that they have the intent to continue to spread and grow. How do the insurgents sustain themselves? Are they getting foreign support? Where are their weapons coming from? Uh, well, as in the case of the attack that just uh, happened in, in western Niger, oftentimes they are, are stealing from government armories. They are part of, uh, they're tapping into the, the arms trade, the small arms trade that has existed for a long time all across West Africa. And that's largely where they're getting most of their sort of weaponry. They are probably getting some of the best practices around IEDs and explosives, um, from the global networks that they're tapping into. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Al-Qaeda is uh, 
a network that one of the groups are involved in, and then ISIS Grand Sahara, uh, of course, uh, related to the an affiliate of the Islamic State. And there's even been some suggestions that they, they have some drones. That is certainly uh, a, a different factor when you include drones in the mix. And the IEDs certainly do pull along those same tactics as we see from the groups in the Middle East. Are the primary targets the militaries of these countries or are citizens also a factor when it comes to targeting from the insurgent groups? No, both are both are targets. Um, they are hitting uh, government and peacekeepers. The U.N. mission in Mali, MINUSMA, is the deadliest mission uh, U.N. mission in the world in terms of the number of casualties they take. And the extremist groups uh, have been very um, sophisticated in those attacks. There was an attack back in April of, of 2018 where they painted uh, a truck white, like a U.N. truck, and then was able to blow up the, uh, the airport in Timbuktu. But they are attacking civilians, both low-grade, just putting explosives on the road or even in, uh, in carcasses. Uh, but they're also doing some pretty high-level attacks. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways, one of the points of these attacks is to remove um, centers of uh, authority, uh, like uh, tribal chiefs, and to create tensions between communities so that they can sort of figure out who to play off of who so they can move in. You focus on Mali as being the epicenter of this insurgency and where many of the problems rest in regards to the domestic government and its weakness. What needs to be done in Mali to improve this situation? I think that we need to take a closer look at why the response has unfolded the way it is from the Malian government. The large percentage of the population, 90% of the population, is in the south. That is not where all elites come from, but a pr- good proportion of it. That's certainly the base of the ruling party. And this government in Mali largely sees costs to doing more um, of the kinds of hearts and minds approach that you would want to see in a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operation. Um, they are under pressure from their constituents not to move resources from the south to central or to northern Mali. And they, quite honestly, are benefiting from the growing war economy. And so I think that the international community is is very seized with this problem set. I think countries like Niger and Burkina are seized with this problem set. Uh, but Mali tends to give lip service because it's not in their political interest to resolve it. And in some cases, they're benefiting from it. And what I would suggest is we have to really think about how do we change those domestic political calculus to get a, a true partner in, in Mali. What kind of military uh, capacities do these countries have? Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, do they have the ability to stand up to these insurgencies much on their own, or or do they really depend on the UN task force that's helped out, the peacekeepers, as well as the G5 task force that's backed by France? Yeah, these are all countries with very limited capacity. These are are very poor countries, um, but you have to pair that with will. So Niger has will and low capacity. It's a country that is on all sides confronted by security challenges, uh, Boko Haram in the south, Libya in the north, and then Mali um, in the in the west. Uh, but a good partner for the U.S. and France, Burkina, um, is a country that uh, had been largely immune from these attacks until very recently. 
but they had disbanded the the sort of the the crack presidential security unit because it had been involved in some coups, and so they lost ten percent of their capacity. But really, uh, in terms of manpower, but really a much larger majority of their their overall ability to respond. And and the government is tapping their gendarmes and their police to respond, which aren't really capable of doing that. And then Mali, which has had you know, a coup and and has been under-resourced in terms of the military, um, doesn't have much will and, and doesn't have a lot of capacity, even if there is uh, the European mission that's trying to do some training and then uh, Manusma and then, of course, the French counterterrorism uh, effort known as Operation Barkhane, which is across all four countries, all five countries. How big of a factor are ethnic militias in this fight? And what kind of a problem does that create in of itself in trying to get these various communities to actually work together and not against each other? Yeah, there's uh, always a big debate about ethnic militias. Uh, in one sense, uh, they can be elements that have local legitimacy, really know the terrain. Um, but in, in, a, in a fragmented in a, uh, countries like these, where there's a real ethnic tapestry, um, tapping these ethnic militias often um, incites other sort of these sort of downstream negative effects. So um, once the government chooses a particular ethnic group or community self-defense uh, actor to work through, uh, what happens is their adversaries or people who feel that they potentially may be the targets of these groups, they are going to look for their own benefactors, which means that they will go to ISIS or al-Qaeda. I don't think many of these communities see these groups the way that maybe the West does as, as bad, good, terrorism, not terrorism. This is about, you know, who is the, what is the organization that can protect me from, from groups that seem to be um, working on behalf of the state to um, minimize my access to political power or to economic resources. The French-backed G5 Sahel Task Force has 4,000 or so French soldiers, another 14,000 U.N. peacekeepers. How are those forces acquitting themselves in the field against the militants? Have they been effective at all? There's, we're talking about three things. So um, Operation Barkhane, which is about 4,000 French troops, are largely doing CT operations, uh, effective at, I think, high-value target, moving people from the battlefield, but that's largely tactical. That may disrupt an attack. Uh, that may cause some sort of uh, anxiety, apprehension around the senior ranks of the military, of the militants, excuse me. Um, but the sort of, that's sort of uh, insufficient on its own. The G5 Sahel, which is the, the five countries' militaries that are doing bilateral operations but also working symbolically in a multilateral setting are, are, are doing very little. I mean, these, this, is, this is an organization that can't crawl yet. Um, it's, it's certainly not uh, at the pointy end of the spear. And then there's Minusma, the nearly 20,000-person uh, international UN peacekeeping force that is, I think, larded on, has too many responsibilities, too many mandates, uh, mainly focused on force protection, probably still too oriented towards the north. Uh, I was in Mali last year, and I, what I really liked is someone said to me that Manusma is Mali's life support. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to solve Mali. It's just what some one element that's keeping it sort of functioning, uh, but it's not going to be the solution in and of itself. 
You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the growing terror insurgency in Africa's Sahel region with Judd Devermont, director of the Africa program with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You mentioned how deadly the peacekeeping operation has been in Mali. Uh, is there any pullback from those countries involved in that operation, or are they committed to trying to help Mali overcome this insurgency? You know, I haven't seen much wavering from the the elements that have contributed to uh, Manusma really outside of uh, the Canadian elements that that departed. They sort of a fast reaction um, part of of Manusma. Uh, but the Europeans, in general, this is their number one priority in 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 Africa because of the terrorism threat and migration threat. And so I think they're in the fight. The Africans, particularly uh, the Senegalese, which is a really important element of Minusma, uh, seem very committed. Their president is very worried about the development. So in large part, despite how deadly this mission is, I do think there's a significant amount of buy-in, even if there's a recognition that perhaps it's not structured uh, most effectively. I've read that U.S. surveillance drones have been increasingly used to provide support. Uh, is there any way to indicate that, that that's providing a, a solid base of help for the anti-insurgency campaign? I mean, I, I can't speak to it directly. I, I suspect that's true in terms of giving people more situational awareness on, on what's going on. But, you know, those these, these are things, Jason, that helps potentially block or disrupt uh, an impending attack. These aren't the sorts of things that are going to um, address what are the underlying drivers uh, of this conflict. And obviously, one of the big drivers would be poverty. It would be hard to find a stretch of the world other than the Sahel with greater poverty. Uh, What can be done to improve the day-to-day lives of the citizens in those countries within the Sahel so they don't look towards an al-Qaeda or an Islamic State for assistance? I always start with governance. I mean, I think that when uh, it doesn't necessarily mean how, it doesn't necessarily have to reflect how poor you are, but if you believe that you can take care of your family, if you believe that the government um, is, is going to provide some security and services, I think that's the most important element that is going to uh, deter people from, from uh, joining extremist groups and obviously part of that is the economic the economy and um, many of these governments haven't created the enabling environments to um, induce more investment or the confidence that staying in the formal economy as opposed to the informal economy is going to be better for for a foreigner or a domestic uh, investor in business None of these countries appear anywhere close to joining that level of of gaining massive business confidence for investments. Is there a realistic future that we can look forward to for these countries and citizens of the Sahel where they can at least live their lives with basic functions that one would expect from their governments? Well, I think that there is certainly an outcome in which um, there can be greater peace and stability in, in the countries in the Sahel. Mali has, this is Mali's fourth rebellion, so they've been dealing with this since the 1960s. Uh, Niger has had uh, its share of them as well, but in between those rebellions, I mean, they've been able to uh, to manage, and um, as long as there are um, opportunities for, for people to sort of live out their lives without fear 
um, from competitors, from 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 a predatory government, or from extremist groups, I think that you know we can get back to a place of peace and security. And um, what I would really focus on is: Are these governments interested in in doing what's right for their people? And how do we how do we help them if there that truly is their will and intent? Climate change continues to become a bigger economic factor around the world, and the Sahel has been prone to droughts. Are these countries even remotely prepared to deal with that factor? No, I don't think that they're prepared to deal with that. Uh, climate change is going to most acutely affect this region, and uh, they're not the ones who are driving uh, the problem, the global problem, and uh, the solutions are, are, are really sort of difficult to, to, to think through uh, because it's a global problem. This is, these are arid areas, and um, water supplies and grazing land are just going to shrink over time. And we're already looking at a refugee crisis from those trying to flee the insurgents. Uh, where are they fleeing to, and are there any safe havens? Uh, some of, I mean, they're they're fleeing in a whole host of different places and ways. So they're going, they're embedding themselves in in communities within their own countries, IDPs, going across the border um, uh, into um, into the littoral countries. I, I don't know if there's a, a safe haven per se, but for right now, um, if you're moving further south into Togo or Benin or Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire or uh, to the west in Senegal, those are safer areas right now. Although the uh, the extremists have already started to do attacks um, in some of these countries. In Benin, there was a kidnapping there uh, just this year. And then in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, there was an attack on a, a coastal resort town known as Grand Bassam in, I believe, 2016. What is Nigeria's role in this? Lagos is obviously battling its own insurgency with Boko Haram, but it's the richest country in the region. How important is Nigeria's inclusion in forming an alliance against the jihadists across the Sahel? Nigeria, as you said, is dealing with its own insurgent problems, both Boko Haram and then the ISIS-aligned faction. Um, I think that those groups operate largely separate from uh, the other groups uh, in the Sahel, although ISIS has said that their West African province includes both uh, the those that operate in Nigeria and those that operate in um, in the Sahel in in Niger, but I think that's probably a nominal at best. Nigeria's role, because it is essentially dealing with its own economic problems, security problems, political problems, is is just going to be within the ECOWAS uh, structure. Um, the regional body and, and helping with the decision making. If ECOWAS, as uh, President Gabore of Burkina and then uh, Chancellor Merkel and President Macron have said, uh, to take a larger role in responding to the Sahelian crisis. Given how strong the insurgents are appearing across the Sahel, how much of a threat are they to the south of the Sahel and further expanding their reach across Africa? Yeah, I think this is a real a real concern. As I said, they've already done an attack, uh, a kidnapping attack in Benin, and then an attack in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, I think the littoral countries such as Ghana and Togo and Cote d'Ivoire are are really concerned about this, and uh, these groups are 
agile enough to find new ways into these communities. And so uh, the watchword for, for Togo and Benin and Cote d'Ivoire is to um, make sure that you're doing the kinds of engagement, understanding the landscape um, on, that, on those border regions and further south so that you can have good law enforcement, community policing, good intelligence, uh, that you can um, at least try to minimize the threats that are posed by uh, the creeping crisis further north. Are the insurgents using the same recruiting methods as they, they have, uh, such as al-Qaeda and Islamic State have in the Middle East, Europe, and North America, really leaning on social media? Is is that key here? No, I, I don't think that's that's as big of a part as it is in other regions. This isn't a lot of self-radicalization. This is... Um, coming into communities, exploiting grievances, creating tensions and dissent uh, between identity groups re- defined by religion or economy or ethnicity, and then uh, finding recruits that way, and, and really leaning on or banking on the government to make mistakes that pushes more people into the recruitment, into the extremist arms. Judd, as we head into 2020, do you think the crisis in the Sahel will show improvement, or do you think it's going to get worse before we see any improvement in this particular scenario? I I hate to be pessimistic, but I think it's going to get worse. I just don't see enough happening in the region uh, that is going to slow their their expansion. Uh, I do think the international community is, is increasingly concerned and engaged. I think that's positive. Uh, I, I'd like to see better international coordination, thoughtfulness about how to respond to it. But I I think it's going to have to get worse or it's going to get worse before it gets better. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case in in many different areas around the world. But we certainly do hope for the best for the people in the Sahel. Judd, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. My pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking to Judd Devermont, director of the Africa program with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T Mobile.com.